Greetings and welcome back to Conversations with the Mind. I'm your host, as always, Shane Lamaster. I want to start by welcoming all of our listeners back to the show and express my uh, gratitude and thanks for your continued listenership, as well as uh, for your continued liking and sharing of our posts on social media. That's really how we get the message out as clear as possible. So thank you so much for that. And thank you to those who have been donating to the podcast. It's really making a big impact in our ability to get a better message out to you all. So we just received a large donation today. Uh, shout out to Spencer Bath. Thank you so much for your donation to the podcast. Um, it's going to make our ability to upgrade our systems and our microphones uh, that much better. So this is episode 30. And as soon as we get around episode 40, I'm going to start upgrading our systems. So uh, expect that coming right around the bend. I want to let all our listeners know that we are sponsored, as always, by my private practice at counseling and consulting company, MindOps. You can find us at mindops.com. That's M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S.com. We are an eclectic counseling company with multiple specializations. Uh, we work with teams, individuals, small and large groups, businesses, really anybody who's looking to perform better at whatever aspect of their life they want to perform better. We work in one-on-one sessions, uh, distance sessions, uh, so we can meet you face-to-face or over the phone or a uh, uh, a video chat type app. Um, and we specialize in addiction counseling, general psychotherapy, psychedelic integration therapies, and sport and performance psychology. Also check out our YouTube channel. That's the Mind Ops YouTube channel. Um, for uh, We've been uploading a lot of videos, kind of breaking down some of the concepts that we talk about on the podcast. So if you're interested in some of the topics and want to get some deeper understanding or at least um, a good starting point um, in your own research, check out our YouTube channel and please like and share those videos as well. So on to our good news section of the podcast. Um, Our good news story today again comes from the Good News Network and the title of the article reads, when college senior couldn't find someone to watch his baby daughter, professor lends a hand. And it's a really great story about uh, this professor. His name is uh, Dr. Nathan Alexander who was concerned about his student not making it to class because the student couldn't find childcare. So he actually offered to, uh, he, he told his student to bring his, his daughter in and ended up holding his daughter uh, for the entire class. So not only was he teaching um, his student, making sure that he was able to take notes, but he was also holding his baby. So really cool to see um, academians and people like that going one extra step forward to really make a difference in people's lives. So that's our good news story for today. Our guest is a very special guest. Um, hailing from San Diego, California right now, uh, Professor Peter Yacobagi. He's a third-degree Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, <clears throat> two-time Noki world, world champion, and three-time medalist in the world championships in the gi divisions. Uh, he's owner and operator of the 5x5 Mission Ready System, which is a special operations and law enforcement training system that he's developed and it continues to develop. Um, he's a full-time professor out at the Autos Training Center in San Diego, training with uh, the likes of Andre Galvao and their entire team. Uh, their, in- their entire team, um, interesting fact, are defending World, world and Pan Am uh, champions in the team division. So that's really cool uh, to have him on the podcast. I know uh, Professor Yakavazi um, from uh, my training experience, he's been one of my um, primary mentors in my life uh, for jujitsu. And I, I really value uh, what he brings to the table as far as mentality and uh, training and champion mindset. And so it's our pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Welcome. 
Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here. So I always start uh, my podcast off with the same question to all my guests, and that is um, the podcast is called Conversations with the Mind. And I just want to know, you know, how does that phrase land for you? What sort of meaning do you gain from that phrase and how does it resonate? Um, wow, you know, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, instantly when I think of it, uh, it, it causes me to think about my mind. You know, you and I both live in a world that is such a physical world. And um, as far as a career for me, being a full-time athlete and working with military and law enforcement, you know, almost everything I do from the outside looking in is physically based. But as a competitor, and especially now working with special operations, military and high-risk law enforcement, there's a lot of thinking that goes on, you know, before we, we actually go forward. So when I think about conversations with the mind, um, you know, my first thought is that physically I use my body as a tool, but, um, you know, really my mind is the, is the master engine behind the body without, without engaging my mind or using my mind or bringing my mind into play. You know, my body's just an empty vessel with no driver. Yeah, that's great. Um, you know, in, if I can remember back to uh, my younger years, like in my late teens and twenties, when I was still active in sports and an active competitor, um, I didn't have much sense as far as like uh, engaging my mind and the importance of engaging my mind at that time. And I really wish I would have. Um, do you find that that's something you've developed over time or is that something that you've always had that, that uh, mentality that uh, the mind is, is also an important factor in your training and should be trained as much as your physical? You know, I, when I was a younger athlete, um, I probably was much more physical, much more reactive um, than I am now. You know, I, I think I used my mind probably a great deal when I was younger because I had, I had the, the great fortune of having a father who had uh, gone on to play in the NFL, was a Heisman Trophy nominee while playing football at Princeton University. So, you know, my father was both academically and athletically successful in his life. So as a young age, having a father like that, who also was my coach, you know, we talked a lot around the dinner table about about using your mind and body and, you know, don't just use your body. So I think I was blessed in that way. But I can tell you that over time, especially as I've continued to compete in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu now for going into my third decade, um, I see now that I use my mind a lot more. You know, I really try to think a lot more about what I do. I, I use my mind in my training, you know, because I've reached an age where um my body's not as resilient as it was in its 20s. So I have to sometimes play a mind game with myself. So I think as we get older, uh, I think all of us probably or hopefully use our mind a little bit more because, you know, the, just like our body, our, our mind is, uh, is something that we need to continue to work with and continue to develop and continue to train. And, and I think hopefully for, over time, it gets better and better. Yeah, that's interesting. You talk about, you know, playing a, a mental game with yourself when you're competing or training. Um, and I find the same thing. How do you uh, how do you engage your mind actively in training and in competition to your benefit? Um, you know, I think for me now, I have to use my mind to sometimes talk me out of doing foolish things um, when it comes to training. Um, you know, I, I train every day with with world champions, and many of them are half my age, um, and just incredible, incredible athletes. And your body wants to push itself to the limit nonstop, day in and day out. But there are times when I'll come home from a hard training, and I will just have to tell myself, 
okay, you need a day of rest now. As bad as you want to go train tomorrow, you're going to go tomorrow. You're going to be tired. You're going to be sore. You're going to push yourself too far and you're going to risk an injury. So now I think my mind, uh, the way I've been using it to my benefit lately is my mind talks common sense into me, you know, because your ego wants to get on the mat and train and go. But sometimes your mind has to remind you, hey, wait a minute. You know, sometimes you have to be smart and you have to take a break. So I think that's where my mind is helping me the most. It's helping keep my ego in check. Yeah, I find that I'm, I'm doing a lot more of that myself these days. Um, you know, finding that, that my mind wants my uh, my body to move in ways that I could in my 20s before all my knee surgeries. Um, but then my body these days frequently reminds my mind that, uh, you know, the body is not capable maybe of some of the same movements I was capable of 10 years ago. And so I have to readjust and, and keep myself in check so that I don't um, risk injury. I've, I've, like when I push myself, um, when I, when my mind takes over and like you said, my ego takes over and I push myself past where my body is capable these days, that's where I find myself getting injured and then frustrated and depressed that I can't even train. And so, yeah, I'm finding that, uh, you know, engaging my mind more in the finding balance or recovery sense is working more to my advantage these days than trying to really push my body past its limits. I, I agree. I, I think that that really lends credence to the old adage that has now become the new adage, train smarter, not harder. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so you've been in uh, the jujitsu game for a really long time, um, and that's really what kind of drew me into wanting to train under you in the first place. I first met you when you came uh, to Z's gym and, and you put on a seminar with uh, Master Silvio a number of years ago, and I kind of followed you out to Utah a couple times to train with you out there. And um, I've heard little snippets about your your uh, up and coming through jujitsu, but never really the whole story. I was I was hoping you could share with me, you know, how you got started in it and, um, you know, all along your whole journey to where you are now, you know, sure. it's something that I, that I can look forward to. And, and, uh, and for people like myself, uh, you know, who's a brown belt or for people who are lower belts, you know, we need role models. We need to, uh, understand how other people have achieved what they've achieved and what we want to achieve so that we can emulate that and even hopefully improve upon the path and pass that down, um, to future generations too. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, my story is, is, you know, unique for me. Um, but I think when jujitsu people hear it and I've had a chance to share it with a lot of people and, um, I'm always pleased at the way people respond to it in, in the jujitsu world, I came to jujitsu relatively late. I didn't start training Brazilian jujitsu until I was in my late twenties. Um, and I started, I literally tripped over jujitsu in a sense. I had grown up as an athlete, I had wrestled and I had played football and I'd always been involved in, in strength training and conditioning. So I grew up in a very athletic family and I was always an athlete, both in high school and in college. After I graduated college, um, I wasn't good enough to be a professional football player and certainly wasn't big enough. And for guys like me that loved wrestling at that time, you know, I really all that there was was the WWF at that time, which I think is now called the WWE. And I didn't really envision myself as being the next Hulk Hogan. So I realized that my wrestling career had also probably come to an end. And I had just moved on with life. And I was actually living in Hermosa Beach, California in 1995. And this was uh, just a few years after the first UFC where a uh, little Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt by the name of Hoist Gracie 
kind of shock the world by showing the rest of the world outside of the Brazilian jiu-jitsu community just how effective and how dangerous a highly skilled grappler or Brazilian jiu-jitsu fighter could be. Um, so people were just beginning to hear the term Gracie jiu-jitsu or Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but it, it really hadn't hit mainstream culture yet. And um, I was working out in Gold's Gym in Redondo Beach. And at that time, uh, several members of the Hoist Gracie family were working out there. So I'd gotten to know a few of them, and I got to know a few of their students. And um, ironically, um, every Saturday afternoon for about a year or so, the Gracies had a, um, a, a kind of a small jiu-jitsu program in Gold's Gym. Uh, and it was available for all Gold's Gym members with your membership. It was a very informal class. You just kind of come in with a gi or with shorts or t-shirt. And uh, you could just learn some real basic jujitsu. And looking back, there were some Saturday afternoons when I would go in the gym and there'd be maybe two or three guys in there. Um, and it just hadn't caught on yet. And uh, so I took a few classes and, you know, I kind of went in with a wrestler's ego thinking, well, God, these, these little guys can't, they're not going to do anything to me. You know, I, I just, I hope I don't hurt these guys. And, you know, I learned very quickly that it was, that it was I hope these guys don't hurt me. So uh, I started to learn a little bit of jujitsu, just enough to to appreciate how incredible it really was. And I think for a lot of people, um, in that scenario, one of two things will happen: either your ego will get the better of you, and you'll walk out frustrated and say, "Well, I'm never going to do that again." Or, as in my case, I would go home and say, "How did that little guy do that to me?" And uh, I'd always want to go back and figure it out and learn more because I couldn't understand how. A stronger, faster, aggressive athlete with a wrestling background could continue to lose to uh, somebody that didn't seem as athletic as me. Um, and during that time, I met uh, an incredible guy who actually became my very first Brazilian jiu-jitsu instructor and is now um, one of my good friends and one of my biggest rivals on the IBJJF competition scene. And when I say rival, I, I mean that in a very good way, certainly not a negative way. Uh, a very famous Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt named Wellington Megaton Diaz. And I met him in 1996, and he was already a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt and a world champion and already uh, a Brazilian champion in, ju in judo um, and very well recognized in the Brazilian jiu-jitsu community. He and I became very good friends, and we started working out together. He lived in Phoenix, Arizona, and I lived in Hermosa Beach, but he was commuting back and forth quite a bit to visit a girl he was dating at that time who later became his wife. And, and she was actually the, the mutual friend that we had, and that's how I came to know him. So uh, my first jiu-jitsu instructor was Megaton Diaz, and he was at that time under uh, Professor Hickson Gracie. So I formally was introduced through Brazilian jiu-jitsu through Megaton, uh, informally through the Gracies over at Redondo Beach's Gold's Gym. But when I really started to take classes as a formal student, I started with Megaton under the Hicks and Gracie Association. And I actually received my blue belt in 1997, I believe, um, through Megaton and through the Hicks and Gracie uh, Association. And then from there, um, I think like a lot of people, I fell in love with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I fell in love with everything about it. it uh, I think for a lot of people, it becomes a lifestyle as much as anything else. Um, I had an opportunity to go to Brazil um, in the late 90s and 99, um, and I started training down in Brazil. And at that time, I was training with a very famous world champion black belt named Marcio Corletta. 
And one of my teammates was uh, a, a very famous blue belt at the time named Fabricio Verdun. And for most people in the Brazilian jiu-jitsu MMA world, that's almost a household name. Um, Fabricio Verdun went on to become a world champion, an ADCC champion, and then ultimately a UFC heavyweight champion. Um, but back in those days, he was just this young, very talented, very funny Brazilian jiu-jitsu blue belt that I got to train with every day. And looking back, most days I would win the takedown. And after that, he would put me in triangle after triangle after triangle. So as time went on, I continued to go through the Brazilian jiu-jitsu program and system. Uh, I studied under uh, a very famous master now in Brazil named Master Silvio Baring, who is uh, very famous for creating several world champions. Uh, that list would include Marcio Corletta, Fabricio Verdun, Mario Hayes. Um, master Silvio has worked with Anderson Silva. He's worked with, uh, with several high-end uh, UFC fighters as well. So I was very fortunate to train under him and his program and system. And also a very talented black belt named Fabio Oliveira, who was a black belt under Master Silvio's brother, um, Marcelo Baring. And um, people today might not recognize that name, but back in the 80s and the 90s, the name Marcelo Baring uh, in jiu-jitsu was like mentioning the name Tiger Woods in golf or Michael Jordan in basketball. Marcelo mm. Baring was, was and still is considered one of the great our greatest jiu-jitsu practitioners of all time. So I had the great fortune of being involved with a team and a family that really had incredibly impressive jiu-jitsu pedigree. Um, ultimately, I received my black belt in 2004 after having won the Pan Americans um, as a brown belt. And uh, Master Silvio and Fabio Oliveira basically said, you know, uh, win the Pan Ams as a brown belt, and then the next step for you will be to get your black belt. So... I went out, I won the Pan Americans as a brown belt, and a few months later, uh, I was promoted to black belt, and I just have been doing it ever since. Uh, I'm no longer with the Bering team, per se. I'm now fighting full-time for uh, Professor Andre Galvan and fighting for Atos, the Atos team, and I'm a professor at Atos HQ in San Diego, but I'm on that team with the Master Silvio's blessing. Um, Master Silvio's in Brazil, and... I was moving to San Diego, and uh, Master Silvio is very familiar with Andre Galvan. Uh, Andre Galvan has a great deal of respect for Master Silvio, and Master Silvio knew that I wanted to take my competition game to the highest level I possibly could. And um, having the opportunity to train at Atos and with Andre Galvan really was the perfect fit for me. So um, I left the Bering team um, with great respect and great admiration, knowing that I was making a move over to Atos personally for me to advance my competition goals and my competition career. But I have a great deal of respect, and certainly I owe a great deal to the, Bering's, the Bering family, especially Master Silvio and Fabio Oliveira and Marcio Corletta, um, for, for bringing me up through the ranks of jiu-jitsu and certainly for giving me the foundation that I work from now. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, thank you for sharing that with me. I've heard, like I said, I've heard bits and pieces of that and the whole story. Did you, um, did you meet Mr. Silvio while you were in Brazil or did you, how did you end up meeting him? You know, I, I met him in a, in a, in a great way. Um, I was, uh, I went to a Brazilian jiu-jitsu seminar at a school in Salt Lake City, um, and he was the guest who was giving the seminar. It wasn't his school. It was a Hickson Gracie affiliated school, 
And Master Silvio came with Grandmaster Alvaro Bajeto um, to give a seminar. And it was the first time in my life I had ever been on the mat with such a high pedigree, um, uh, as far as a Grandmaster, I would say. Um, I'd been on the mat with, with Hicks and Gracie, who is incredible, and Marcio Corletta, who's incredible. But uh, here I was at that time, I believe it was 1999, with Grandmaster Alvaro Bajeto and Master Silvio. And uh, they came and gave like a two-day seminar type of clinic. And I was just so overwhelmed and so impressed by, by their teaching ability and the level of jiu-jitsu that I was being exposed to that um, I was invited by them later that year to come to Brazil to live and train for six months, for basically the summer and the fall, with the hopes of competing full-time for their team and and fighting in Brazil and then fighting in the World Championships, which at that time was held in Brazil. It was actually called the Mundials, and they were held uh, every year at the Tijuca Tennis Club in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. They're now held here in the United States, but back then... Uh, it was in Brazil. So um, I first met him here on U.S. soil, but then later went to train under him and with his team, Winter Bearing, um, in Brazil, actually in both the cities of um, Rio de Janeiro and in the south of Brazil in a very beautiful city called Porto Alegre. Mm -hmm. Nice. Um, so, that I mean, going to Brazil and training in Brazil has always been something that I have had on my bucket list and I definitely want to do in the future. But um, unlike, you know, Muay Thai, where I see a lot of uh, documentaries actually depicting and showing what, um, you know, what the training is like in Thailand, uh, it's much different than here in the U.S. I never really see uh, any sort of video or anything about what training is like in in brazil for jujitsu um, and but i've heard stories that it's vastly different much harder much hotter things like that um could you share a little bit about you know your experience training in brazil and what that was like yeah you know I, I i will tell you that i think it's a lot different now than what people might have envisioned and i say that because um here we are almost in 2020 so if you remember the first time i went to brazil to train was in 1999, so it really was 20 years ago. Um, and back then, there was only a handful of American schools, there was only a handful of American black belts, and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu had yet to explode on the American scene. So really, you know, the mecca of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was in Brazil. Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro and Porto Alegre and Curitiba and some of the bigger cities of Brazil um, so back then, 20 years ago, if you really wanted to immerse yourself in Brazilian jiu-jitsu and be able to train with the best competitors in the world and the best black belts in the world and certainly have access to the best teams in the world, at that time, they were all in Brazil. So as an American who was used to training with blue belts and purple belts and maybe lucky enough to have a handful of black belts that occasionally would come through or you'd get to train with in America. Now you go to Brazil where you're standing on a mat where there are just, it's a sea of blue belts and purple belts, but at the head of the sea, you're looking at 10 or 15 black belts. And 20 years ago, you didn't see that in academies in America. So looking back then, it was incredible. Um, you know, you're training on a mat where everybody is at such a higher level than you, um, for them, jujitsu really was a lifestyle. It wasn't just a sport. It was something they were fully committed to. And I think a lot of these guys in these academies, 
they all dreamed of one day being a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu world champion. So their their training mindset was different. They trained harder. They trained longer. And I think a lot of them saw Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu as a way to make it out of um, maybe their their uh, financial situation or maybe their homes and and maybe move on. And, and a lot of them were looking to not only become world champions, but looking to make Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu their life and their business. Whereas in America, a lot of people at that time were doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu as a hobby. Um, so there was a big difference. Americans at that time, most of them did it a few nights a week as a hobby because it was new and it was fun. But you'd go to schools in Brazil and you were on a mat where to these young kids and, and these guys, it was not a hobby. It was, you know, I'm here to be the best in the world and I'm going to do whatever it takes to be the best in the world. So the training was was more intense, was longer, was more physical. And because you had access to a higher level of jujitsu at that time, I think I was being exposed to a, to a, a level or a style of jujitsu I wasn't seeing in America. And, I, and I, I keep referencing that was 20 years ago because now I think for someone going to Brazil to get that same experience, uh, you know, I don't want to say that you won't get that experience, but I don't, I don't believe that you will. And the reason being is now some of the best, if not the best teams in the world and the best BJJ athletes in the world, they're now here in America where 20 years ago they weren't. So I believe that, that here at some of the teams and some of the schools in the U.S., you can have access to some of the most incredible, intense training in the world because so many of those high-end athletes are now living and training and teaching here. But uh, I also do tell people that, that if you love Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and it's something that's really a part of your life, you absolutely should go to Brazil to experience it because that's still the great birthplace of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And, and the Brazilian people are wonderful. The culture is amazing. Uh, the food and the people and the experience, it's something that I think everybody who really has embraced jiu-jitsu should experience. And, and the chance to go to some of these academies that really were the pioneer academies or the flagship schools for Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So going to Brazil and learning Brazilian jiu-jitsu, I think should be on everyone's bucket list. It's a wonderful opportunity. But if you were to ask me, do I need to go to Brazil to train with the very best and to become a world champion? I would say, no, you have, you have the same opportunities now, if not more, to do it right here in the United States. Yeah, so it sounds like uh, for sure the United States has improved upon you know, our pool of uh, experience and things like that and availability of top-level training opportunities. Would you say that in the last 20 years um, the climate has changed in Brazil or are they still pretty um, in, the, in the same traditional way that they were 20 years ago? You know, I, I don't know that the climate has changed. I think that a lot of young Brazilians now realize that that um, Brazilian jiu-jitsu has gone mainstream. It's not just a sport of Brazil. Um, you know, it's I believe it's probably in every country, and if it isn't, it will be soon. I think a lot of them realize that there are great fighters in Europe, great fighters in America, great fighters in, um, in the Middle East. I mean, it, just all over the place. I think that um, there are so many talented young Brazilians that we may never know or may never hear of because they live in small towns and they just train jiu-jitsu at small academies. Um, and uh, they, they may not have those opportunities to uh, compete on the world stage 
are to come to America and train at some of the bigger academies. Um, I think it's uh, it's always going to be that way in Brazil. I mean, um, there's just so much talent there, and Brazilian jiu-jitsu there really is a part of the culture. It's a part of the lifestyle. Um, so in answer to your question, I, I think that the kids in Brazil or the young men starting out doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu are still every bit as hungry, every bit as talented. But I think now a lot of them are hoping that their accolades or their accomplishments in Brazilian jiu-jitsu are going to take them to the next level. And for them, that next level may be moving to America, moving to Canada, moving to Europe, and one day owning their own school. Um, so I think they're looking at Brazilian jiu-jitsu now slightly different. You know, now it's not just to be a world champion for them. I think they see it as a wonderful vehicle and a wonderful opportunity to maybe uh, build a life for themselves and to maybe put themselves financially in a better position than they might be if they were to stay in a small town in Brazil. Yeah, totally. And when you talk about, you know, jujitsu kind of being integrated into the entire culture down there, what what comes to mind with my American type of reference is, you know, um, like communities in California where it's a surfing community like Santa Cruz or something where the, the community itself is, and the people there are, are integrated with surfing into their lifestyle. And that's what I picture. And I really like how you said, um, you know, jujitsu is a way for these people to get out. And now that it has become more mainstream and it is worldwide, I see a lot more transplants um, coming from Brazil uh, you know, going to different countries uh, to teach for six months or teach for uh, 12 months at an academy uh, while they're working on a visa or working on trying to get their own academy set up. And um, the opportunities, I think, for those folks to move on to different countries and different um, experiences is is opening up. I think that's awesome. Yeah, I, I agree. Absolutely. I mean, I can I can give you a perfect example where I'm at right now. Um, you know, I, I have the, the unbelievable great fortune of training under Professor Andre Galvan. And I can tell you that for me, he's the best in the world. And, and that's obviously going to be a little biased because I'm his student and, and I'm also his personal friend. Uh, and there are so many very talented, wonderful jujitsu competitors out there. So I don't mean any disrespect to any other great competitor. But for me, Professor Andre Galvan really is the best. And we would not have had the, the blessing of having Otto's Jiu-Jitsu headquarters in San Diego and training under Professor Andre Galvan had Andre not made a name for himself in Brazil and then migrated here to the United States to compete and to share his Jiu-Jitsu and to ultimately uh, live out his dream of opening up a school in, in San Diego and building his team throughout the United States. So um, I, I, and I think that happens for a lot of people. I mean, I could rattle off a lot of names, you know, Marcelo Garcia, Andre Galvan, Fabricio Verdun, Marcio Corletta is now living here in Southern California and building his team and his program. So I think that Americans are very lucky that so many talented Brazilians at one time in their life decided to come here to, to not only share what they know, but to build their lives here. And, and we were lucky because now we have access to these phenomenal jujitsu instructors and black belts that we may never have had access to unless we were willing to go to Brazil to train with them. Yeah. And I you know, and for the listeners out there, jujitsu is not all work and, and stuff like that, but it's a lot of fun and games too. 
you know, in, in almost, you know, what is it? 25 years, uh, 30 years of jujitsu. You must've had a lot of, uh, funny stories too, from people you met or interactions you've had. I know you've told me one story about how you got your, your nickname down in Brazil, but I'm sure you have lots of funny, funny stories that are really cherished memories coming up. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, I said earlier in this podcast, you know, jujitsu for me has become part of my lifestyle. It's, it's how I make my living in many ways. It, I compete full time and train full time. And I think like a lot of us, like attracts like, or, you know, as we say at Atos, iron sharpens iron. So we tend to be attracted to those most like us. Um, and anybody who's ever played on a sport or been on a team, there's always a lot of teasing and joking and good camaraderie going on. And it certainly exists in the Brazilian jiu-jitsu world, as it probably does in, in every world. Um, but um, I would say that in all the jiu-jitsu teams I've been involved with and the guys that I've, I've trained with and, and literally bled with and sweat with and sometimes even cried with, there's a great deal of teasing and joking and uh, of course, you, you create incredible bonds and incredible friendships. And one of the one of the great things about the Brazilian guys that I that I see um, more and more is that it's a very fun culture, uh, you know, very fun, loving people. And they love to tease and they love to joke. And, um, you know, sometimes at first Americans might think, oh, these guys take it too far. But as you get to know them and you become a part of that, you realize, no, not at all. In fact, I always tell people. If they're not teasing you and not giving you a funny nickname and not joking with you, that's when you should worry because then they probably don't like you. Uh, I don't know whether that's true or not, but I, at least I can say for me, uh, I've had so many great memories and fun adventures associated in and around the Brazilian jiu-jitsu world. So, uh, you know, when I look at Brazilian jiu-jitsu, it's not just get up in the morning, uh, put on your gi, step on the mat and train for a couple hours and go home. You know, it's really a part of a lifestyle that you kind of embrace and um, very typical here for us at Atos. Um, I train with multiple world champions every single day and we get up together and we meet at the academy and we train and we try to kill each other on the mat. And as soon as we're done, then we help each other. We say, hey, look, you know, I I want to show you how I was able to tap you today or let me show you a guard pass that I think is a really great pass for you. And then afterwards, you know, we'll go out and we'll have coffee or we'll have lunch. And, you know, one of them might say, oh, geez, I forgot my wallet. Well, listen, I taught you a guard pass. It's your turn to buy. <laughs> you do that. And, then, and then, you know, later on, we'll meet at the gym and we'll go lift weights. And um, you might be in the middle of doing a really intense set and you look out of the corner of your eye and one of your buddies is making a funny video of you to post on his Instagram. And um, that, then later that weekend, you know, you might go to the beach for the day and uh, you just continue to spend time with each other. So at least for me, and I think for a lot of people that really become a part of this lifestyle, you realize that not only do you create incredible training partners or have the, the incredible training partners with you, they also in turn become your friends, incredible friends that, that uh, probably you would have never had a chance to meet or form those friendships had it not been for that common bond of bleeding and sweating together and and training together every day. So it's, it's really funny in the sense you to explain to a non jujitsu person, you know, Hey, here's my best friend. We're together all the time. He tried to choke me out all morning long, but he's still my best friend and we love each other. Yeah, that's great. And I think that's, you know, that's how we approach it at Z's gym too. It's, you know, if you're not 
being made fun of, or if you're not the butt of a joke once a week, then you, then you might not be welcome, uh, or you might not be part of the team yet. But, um, yeah, I find that I find the same thing too. Um, so you, in your journey, you, uh, your lineage changed several times, starting with Gracie lineage, um, going to, um, bearing lineage and now, you know, soaking up whatever you can, uh, with Andre out in uh, San Diego. And I wanted to ask you this, cause this is like a debated, upon, uh, you know, among lots of different practitioners about lineage in general. And do you think that, um, it's better to have like one lineage where you, you stick with the same lineage the whole time or multiple lineages? Uh, I'm, I tend to be one to kind of, uh, take what I find useful from multiple different um, instructors, mentors, and lineages so that I can make my game as well-rounded as possible and not try and keep myself in one box. I hear a lot of other people debated on the other side saying that, you know, loyalty is important and you need to stick with the same person for your entire jiu-jitsu career. And uh, I just wanted to hear what, what your thoughts on that were. Gosh, you know, that's, I'm going to try to answer that question as best as I can, uh, and certainly in a non-offensive way, because I have been so blessed to be associated with so many talented people in my life. Um, first and foremost, um, it's all Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Um, I like to look at it as it's the tree of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and each part of the lineage is a branch from that tree. Um, you know, Elio Gracie and the Gracie family is credited with actually starting Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Um, and I believe it was 1924, but don't quote me on that. But before that, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu came to them through Jigoro Kano and, and Maeda, who were Judo Jiu-Jitsu practitioners from Japan, who came to spread uh, their knowledge and share it with the Brazilians. So um, first and foremost, I think loyalty is important in all things. You know, loyal to your family, loyal to your friends, loyal to your country. Um, you know, I'm a little patriotic, as you well know. Um, so, yeah, I think loyalty is very important. Um, as far as remaining in the same lineage, that isn't always possible. Um, let's say that you are training under a particular master or a particular professor or a particular school and you live in Chicago and you get a drop a job transfer. And that job transfer takes you to, let's say, somewhere in Texas. And you no longer have access to the team or the professor that you were training with. So does that make you disloyal if you find, if you seek out a Brazilian jiu-jitsu school where you live, that you can continue your own personal growth in Brazilian jiu-jitsu? I, I think anybody with a reasonable mind would say, no, of course not. You're just continuing to participate in the art of Brazilian jiu-jitsu that you love so much. Um, so for me... Um, I, I think that if you do it correctly, and I will try to give myself as an example, um, I got my black belt from Master Silvio Baring. I will always hold a great level of respect and gratitude to Master Silvio Baring and to Master Fabio Oliveira for, for the many gifts that they gave me. I moved to San Diego, California for a career opportunity and for the opportunity to train under Professor Andre Galvan and to fight for Team Atos. Master Silvio Baring is not here in San Diego. There is not a Baring team or there was not a Baring team at that time where I could go and train and compete and continue my own personal growth. So I went to Master Silvio and I, and I let him know that these were my intentions and he was very kind and very generous with his blessing. He said, Peter, I understand 
and I want you to go with my blessing. Please give my respect and my love to Professor Andre Galvan, and I wish you the best of luck training at Atos. So I think for for students or for fighters or for athletes that go from one team to another, I think if you do it in a respectful way, if you do it in a correct way, I don't think there's any form of disloyalty or what Brazilians refer to as called crianchi, which is a kind of a term coined by the Carlson Gracie team uh, when you jump one ship and go to another. I have seen in the Brazilian jiu-jitsu world where uh, fighters have gone from one team to another because they had a, an argument or they had a problem or there was some dissension. And I think that they may have done it uh, incorrectly, maybe disrespectfully. And when they make that jump, they do not speak fondly of their lineage of where they came from. I think there's a lot of animosity there. Um, and I think that probably exists in all sports. So I guess the best answer I can give you is Brazilian jiu-jitsu is a path and a journey for every and each individual. And as a Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner or as a grappler, you're looking to get the best training you can get to make yourself the best that you can be. So in that sense, you always want to expose yourself to the best competitors, the best training partners, the best professors, the best academies. But I think you can do that in a way where you can continue to be respectful to those that you've trained with before and to those that you might train with in the future. So I, I tell people all the time, I, a great example would be at Atos Academy. We have competitors and athletes from other schools that will come to visit us and train with us at Atos, not because they want to be disloyal to their school and not because they're ready to change teams or jump ship, but because they want to know what it's like to come and have a chance to roll with some of the best black belts, brown belts, purple belts, and blue belts in the world. They want to experience an Atos mat. And Professor Andre Galvan always opens the door wide and everybody is welcome. When they come on the mat, they have to wear an, an Atos rash guard. They have to wear an Atos gi. They have to follow the Atos code of conduct. And they, they are now guests on an Atos mat, but they are always welcome. And we try to offer them and teach them and show them the things that we're doing that work for us. And of course, we know they're going to take those things back to their school and to their academies um, and share that. But I think that's one of the great things about Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Nobody owns an arm bar. Nobody owns a choke. Nobody owns a takedown. It's something we all get to do. And, and hopefully in this community, we share it and we try to improve upon it. So I guess I could say is that there are ways that you can go from one team to another in a very respectful way. And there are ways that you can do it in a very disrespectful way. I, I would hope that most people would be thankful where they came from and never forget their roots and be respectful when they make a transition from one team to another. But I know that that isn't always the case. Yeah, I, I think there's, for me personally, I find a lot of value in training with as many people as I can, like you said, like seeking out the best people for my own particular um, development in my journey that I, you know, that I choose. And so, you know, I, I've trained at a lot of different gyms. Uh, I've trained at some gyms where the, uh, the head professor knows that I'm training elsewhere as well. And they get, you know, all butthurt and, and you know, put out an ultimatum and make me want to make, uh, or tell me I need to make a choice. But I've also trained with um, some really great mentors, people like uh, Michael Sullivan, who's been on the podcast, Brian Zeeler uh, from Z's training gym. You, uh, Master Sylvia will always be my, my master, even though I don't get to see him very often. 
uh, professors Olson and professor Neil, all those guys. Um, you know, I, I consider all my mentors and all my professors uh, and we'll continue to, even though, you know, we don't get to see each other as much as, as we'd like. And I don't get to train with you guys as much as, as I'd like. I still find ways to learn from you, whether it's, you know, calling you up and just talking over an issue with you or coming out and training some five by five mission ready stuff with you, like I did in park city or you know, whatever I can to gain not just jujitsu knowledge, but knowledge about life and, and things like that. I think that if, if I, if we keep ourselves closed off to only learning from, one person or a couple people were really limiting ourselves as far as what, what we're capable of really soaking up. And like you said, that tree, uh, you can either follow one branch all the way to the end, or you can, you can keep your roots and, you know, your own jujitsu tree can, can be full of branches and full of connections between the branches, connections that haven't been seen by any, anybody else in their own practice. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I completely agree. And I would encourage people to do that. And, was, uh, and of course, always do it in a respectful way. But, you know, the, the nice thing about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu coming to America, you know, the Americans have great wrestling. And, you know, wrestling is not as big in Brazil as it is here in the U.S. So I look at a lot of the, the athletes here now in America, they've been able to incorporate American wrestling into their Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Um, and I have a friend who is a, a Sambo guy. He's never really done Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And I'm just now starting to expand my own game to get better at leg locks. Because like Dean Lister says, why would you ignore 50% of the body? In Brazilian jiu-jitsu, as I was coming up, I didn't learn a lot of leg locks. I, I learned a lot of arm bars and chokes and, and triangles and things like that. And um, it, it wasn't until later on that I started learning leg locks and, and the lower body attacks. And some of the ones I've learned that have worked the best for me, I've learned from Americans, from guys that have taken Sambo classes or from guys like Dean Lister, um, who kind of created their own leg lock system and their own leg lock game. So I think as the sport evolves, um, you always want to find or seek out the very best that you can to help make you be the very best that you can. And whether that's an American wrestler for takedowns, maybe a Japanese judoka for learning uh, judo throws, maybe a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt for learning Brazilian jiu-jitsu submissions, a sambo guy for leg locks. But I think that I'd like to believe that we've reached a point where we're open-minded enough to realize that there's so much talent out there and so many people willing to share that talent that I think we would be foolish not to open our mind and go and try to learn as much as we can from the very best that we can, whoever that may be. Yeah, I agree with you hundred percent, but you know, on the other side of that coin, there's also, you know, there's a lot of talented people out there from a lot of different disciplines, but there's a lot of people um, out there who are, uh, you know, over, not overcompensate, but overstate um, their capabilities, overstate their, um, you know, technical ability or their lineage or their belt level or whatever. And, you know, I find it difficult sometimes to find the right people to train because, you know, sometimes people will come into the gym um, and on one, one end of the spectrum, they may have like a black belt in judo and then they show up and they put on a white belt in jujitsu and, you know, you're rolling with them and you have no idea that you're, you're about to be slammed into the earth by a, a black belt in judo. Um, so on that end of the spectrum, there's people showing up on the mats, um, sort of underplaying their skill level, even though they are a white belt in jujitsu. And on the other side, there's people who come into jujitsu gym 
wearing belts that, uh, you know, maybe they, you know, they don't deserve or that they, um, they've gotten by, uh, you know, illegitimate means or something like that. Uh, you know, I've encountered that too. So sometimes it's a little difficult to, to find that, that correct group of people. I'm sure you've experienced something like that in your own, um, upbringing too. Uh, absolutely. And, and, you know, that, I think that's just life in general. Um, you know, so, you know, to apply it to the Brazilian jiu-jitsu world for you and I makes sense because we have that in common, but I think it's also just common in life. You know, I think that, uh, uh, a friend of mine who's a doctor once said, listen, you know, uh, I graduated top of my class at Harvard medical school and I have an MD. There's also a guy who has an MD who has an office just down the road. He graduated the last in his class at the worst medical school, but he's still a doctor. Um, and so what I, what I tell people is that, uh, don't get hung up on the color of the belt. The belt is not always indicative of how good you are. The belt is simply indicative of how much time you've spent in an effort to become as good as you are. Uh, I'll give you a perfect example at Atos Jitsu headquarters. And, and I hope I'm not overplaying Atos, but again, it's where I teach, it's where I train and it's where I can give, I think the most accurate reference now. At Atos, we have, during our competition class, we'll have sometimes as many as 60 or 70 competitors on the mat. It's an invitation-only class. It is run as a competition-only class. It is incredibly intense, incredibly difficult. And the mat is filled with Pan American champions, world champions, ADCC champions, uh, guys that are, are the very best of the best in their belt division. Um, so when you're standing on that mat and you're wearing a black belt and you're a Pan American champion and you're a world champion and Professor Galvan tells you, hey, I want you to roll this round with so and so. And you look at his belt and you think, oh, he's only a purple belt. Oh, good. I'll get a break. And then you quickly find out within the first moments that, oh, boy, this guy is is going to throw me all over the place because he's not just a purple belt. He's the best purple belt in the world, and he's won everything in his division. And I think what happens is we will have people come to train with us at Atos who are higher level ranks, maybe brown belts or black belts, and they're probably very good and certainly capable in their school. But they'll come to train with us, and I will see them have a very difficult time with blue belts and purple belts. What they don't realize is that the blue belt or purple belt that they are now rolling with is a world champion blue belt. He's a um, was a all American college wrestler blue belt. He's not just a normal guy with a blue belt. He's the best of the very best, and he competes every weekend at tournaments all over the country. So is it fair to say, well, gee, I, I just got tapped out by a, a blue belt and I'm a black belt? So I tell people, don't pay attention to that. You know, train at the best level you can with the best people you can. Um, one thing I've learned at, at Atos, I guess I've learned this in jiu-jitsu in general, but Atos has really driven this home for me. When you walk in the academy, leave your ego off the mat. You know, certainly bring your confidence with you and your sense of self-confidence. Bring your competitiveness with you. But there's not really room for ego because at any given time, there's always going to be somebody on the mat and he may not have the same belt color as you, but there's always going to be somebody on the mat bigger than you, stronger than you, faster than you and better than you. So you can say, well, look, I'm a black belt. You know, I, I can beat every blue belt on the mat 
Or you can say, hey, look, this is the best blue belt I've ever seen in my entire life. You know, I'm going to try to do my best against him and, and leave it at that. Um, I, I think people sometimes, they, they confuse belt color with ego. Um, and I think it's very dangerous. Um, we saw that just recently. I, I can't remember the exact name, but just recently here in L.A. a few weeks ago at the ADCC trials, there was a blue belt who had only been training jujitsu less than a year and a half, I believe, who was a high pedigree wrestler. He went all the way on to the semifinals, and I believe he took second place. And along that route, he beat some of the best black belts, uh, certainly in the country, to do that. But he was just, and I say just with quotes, a Brazilian jiu-jitsu blue belt. But he was also an incredible wrestler, an incredible athlete, an incredible competitor. So I tell people all the time, the belt is a reference for how long you've trained and hopefully how much knowledge you've gained along the way. But it may not be a reference for how well you're going to fight on the mat or how well you're going to do in a tournament. I think that's a different creature. It's a different mindset. And it's a different athlete. And, and to compare them both or put them both in the same sentence sometimes is not accurate or not fair. I know a lot of very talented black belts that do not compete. And, and when they do compete, they don't do very well. But they are incredible professors, incredible instructors that have a way of relaying the movement to you that they have the ability to make you an incredible competitor. And I also know a lot of incredible competitors, incredible athletes that can't teach very well. You know, they can, they can get you in an arm bar every single time. But when you ask them to teach you that arm bar, they have a difficult time relaying it to you. They just that's not their expertise or their forte. So um, I guess in a nutshell, the belt is great, but, you know, we've heard this before in martial arts. All the belt really does is hold your pants up. I, I don't know if that's entirely true, but. Uh, and I'm wondering, Gracie said uh, the belt only covers two inches. You cover the rest of your ass. That's right. And, and that's very true. And I think the best, the best way to see that is look at a no-gi competition where um, sometimes it doesn't go by belt level. It goes by years of experience. So, uh, you know, the beginner level might be less than six months and the intermediate level, two to three years of grappling. And the advanced level is maybe over four years of grappling. If you're a, it took me almost nine years to get my Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, but I wrestled as a kid and I wrestled for a long, long time. I'll go to tournaments sometimes in the no-gi divisions and uh, there may be a guy in, in the advanced category with me who doesn't hold a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, but he happened to be a four-time state high school wrestling champion and an all-American college wrestler who knows enough jiu-jitsu to be incredibly dangerous. So, you know, he doesn't even have a belt. He just has such a high pedigree, and he's such an incredible grappler and wrestler and athlete that at any given time, he's dangerous to anybody in the room. Yeah. So we only have about three minutes left of this first segment, but I just wanted to ask like a quick follow-up question. Um, so, and I understand for you, and I, I totally uh, adopt what you're saying too, that the belt is only, um, you know, so it's, it's only to recognize uh, time in and, and dedication and things like that. Um, it is really important to some people, though, and um, it is in some sense seen as a way to standardize learning and, and teaching development uh, through a jiu-jitsu career. Um, but there are between jiu-jitsu schools, between lineages, uh, 
you know, where, where a white belt, um, down in, in Brazil may equal, you know, 20 years ago may have equaled like a blue belt or purple belt here. Um, do you think that that's an, that's a problem in, in the jujitsu world where the, uh, the standards aren't the same across schools? I, I think that's probably a problem in the martial arts world. Um, and it's a problem that you hear people debate and argue over the internet and social media all the time. I, I would love if it were a problem that we could find a solution to, but it's difficult, um, you know, because one, one school or one professor may look at a student and think, well, this guy's ready to be a purple belt, where another school might look at a student and say, this guy doesn't have the ability yet to even be a blue belt. So there is no real standard curriculum or protocol. It varies from school to school. For me, that's why I love the competition stage so much, because you can't hide your belt in the middle of a tournament on a competition stage. You're going to get out there. And, and for me, I compete in the master's division and the adult division. I compete in the black belt division. So every tournament I'm at, I'm competing against another black belt. Sometimes I do really, really well, and sometimes I don't. Sometimes I don't, I don't do as well as I think I do. But I always get a chance to compete against a guy who is a black belt. And I tell people, um, if you really want to see where you think your belt rank stands, go do a couple tournaments, do some competitions, and compete against guys from other parts of the country, other schools, other areas that hold the same rank as you. And then go out there with a referee and with a crowd and with the judges and a scorecard and a clock and lay it all on the line. And it's, it's a good bar for you to see where you might stand in the world of your belt. Um, I'm sure there's other ways to determine your rank or how you might stand. But one great thing about competition is it really does separate the, the, the good from the bad, I would say. And that doesn't necessarily mean bad. It just means that if you're if you're wearing a black belt and you've never competed and you're tapping out all the blue belts in your school, that's great and, and no disrespect at all. But take that same black belt and go to a tournament and go in a bracket with 10 or 15 other black belts and see how well you'll do against those guys. That'll give you a much better barometer as to where you really stand in your rank and you know how good you really are. Yeah, I really like that. Um, so for all you listeners out there considering and thinking about where you stand in your own practice, whether it's with jujitsu or with any aspect of your life, um, maybe ask yourself the question, are you challenging yourself enough by putting yourself up against peers of the same experience level? Um, or are you, are you fleeting away from that? Maybe scared that you're not going to live up to what you think you are. You know, that's an ego check for sure. Um, so we're going to take a quick break for um, some sponsors, and uh, we'll be right back with uh, Professor Yakavazi for the second segment of the podcast. Great. All right, back from our quick commercial break, and we're talking with Professor Peter Yakavazi. Uh, welcome back, Peter. Thank you. Um, so now I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about something that's really near and dear to my heart and really um, – really the theme of this podcast, which is, you know, talking about how we engage our consciousness, talking about how we engage our mind and our mental processes, how we can train um, certain mental aspects into ourselves uh, to optimize performance, to optimize experience in life, and to just have a happier existence overall. And uh, I want to relate this back to Jiu-Jitsu too, because that's, that's um, 
really one of the main areas that I know you from. And I was wondering if you could, if you could speak a, a little bit about um, the specific uh, physical training, but also some of the specific mental training that you've engaged in leading up to some of your, um, your world championship victories. You know, I, I mean, not, not to patronize you, but a lot of the mental training that I incorporate, I learned from you. Um, you know, many years ago, I took a class and <clears throat> a training class that you were at. And at the end of class, you had us all lay down and close our eyes and just do some very simple breathing exercises. And then you kind of talked us through a visualization of trying to visualize yourself on the mat and going through uh, an actual competition and seeing the things that you that you do well and trying to to picture that image in your mind of getting that takedown of passing that guard of establishing that position and all the while doing it you had us doing a breathing exercise where we we're calming our body down and just kind of feeling the energy of everybody else on the mat and you know there might have been a time in my life when I was a younger more arrogant athlete where I would have not never bought into something like that I would have been like, what is this stuff? You know, I just, I need to go do more push-ups now. Um, <laughs> but I, I quickly learned that uh, that becomes such a big part of it now. So I, I find because of the door that you opened for me, that as I'm preparing for a tournament, um, and for me, it seems like I'm always preparing for a tournament because I compete full time. I will take a lot of time, whether it's driving home from training, whether it's stretching after training, uh, whether it's sitting in the bullpen waiting for my name to be called to step out onto the mat where I will, I will try to relax and calm my breathing down. And I will try to visualize what my fight might look like, you know, seeing me standing on my feet, seeing the body position I want to be in, seeing myself making that takedown. And then once I make that takedown, you know, how am I going to pass guard and, you know, what position am I going to hold? So at least for me, the great technique of using my mind has come through that visualization of running through that, that competition over and over and over again in my mind, and then hoping that my body can follow suit when I have to actually do it. Yeah, that's great. So the mental rehearsal part is, is really important. And I'm glad that you're finding good value in that. And then also you're talking about, you know, for our listeners who don't know the breathing in particular works on the level of um, a, regulating one's arousal so for people who do compete or have ever competed or whoever stood up in front of a group of people and given a speech or done anything nerve-wracking you know how before these things you know you can get really amped up and you can feel nervous butterflies hyperventilating tension all over the body you know maybe even holding tension that you're not even aware of and usually rapid breathing things like that higher blood pressure or lower blood pressure, depending on who you are, and really a lot of mental chatter. So the breathing exercises really help to not only ground us in our body and pull us out of our mind for a little bit, but also help to regulate those arousal levels, help us regulate heart rate, blood pressure, metabolism, um, all these things um, to help prepare us best for competition. Because it's, it's no good if we're stepping onto a mat or into a a nerve wracking situation and we're already hyperventilating and our, and our uh, energy resources are being drained more rapidly because our heart rate is going really fast. So I'm glad that you're using that breathing and the visualization still. And it's an honor for me to hear that I was a part of that. So well, thanks for sharing that. Oh, thank, thank you for sharing that with me. And in fact, uh, I have shared that with other teammates and, and they're now doing it too. Um, and 
and I'm a, I'm a big believer in it now. You know, I absolutely know it has helped me. I see it helping my other teammates. And, you know, I, I think all competitors, even at the highest level, there's always a little bit of, of pre-tournament anxiety and jitters and adrenaline and uh, anything that helps you to calm down and get centered and get focused on that moment and that task at hand, anything that we can do to give us a little bit more of an edge, I think every competitor should incorporate. Well, great. Maybe you should, you know, get me out there and I'll, I'll run a seminar for Otto sometime. They probably would love it. You would have access to a room full of guys that have, that they all have one common goal to be the best in the world. And I think that they're all open-minded enough that if you could even give them one little thing that could help them along their journey, you'd find a room of very receptive athletes. Nice. Very cool. Yeah. That's, that's usually, um, usually when I go into those situations, I'm, I'm greeted initially with a lot of skepticism. Like you said, a lot of people thinking it's hippy dippy or, or, uh, I'm trying to sell some snake oil or some magic, but once someone gives it a, a good honest try and even puts a little bit of time and practice behind some of the mental skills that I teach, almost everybody comes back and says that, that it was valuable in some way and, and taught them something about themselves or pushed uh, push them to new levels that they didn't think were possible. So that's usually my response or usually the response I get. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm a believer from having been there and had a chance to experience it firsthand with you. I'm a believer. Nice. Um, so I know you use these techniques, the, you know, these mental techniques in your sport and it's been really successful for you in sport. How else do you use um, these sort of techniques like the, either the breathing or the visualization or anything else that you do mentally in your everyday life to, to sort of enhance, um, just enhance your happiness day to day. You know, <laughs> I'll give you a great example that, uh, any parent listening will probably relate to. Uh, I, I'm a single dad and I, I have uh, custody of, uh, of my young son who is now not my young son. He's my young teenager. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think any parent that has a teenager, sometimes looks at their child and says, who are you? Where, where did you come from? You know? <laughs> so uh, I can tell you that there are times with being just being a parent can be very frustrating and can be very challenging. And I think sometimes our, our children, especially our teenagers, they know how to push those buttons and they know how to push the envelope and, and see how far they can come to crossing that boundary. Um, and I have learned for me in being a parent to, to a teenager now that uh, sometimes when my son, uh, Tanner, and he doesn't do it a lot, but he does it enough where I need to, need to take a deep breath, so to speak, he will push that button and he will take it to the limit. And uh, rather than lashing out and, and having it become a very uncomfortable argument or a fight with a teenage boy that I'm never going to win because anybody who has a teenager knows, teenagers already know everything. So there's nothing I can teach him. So I have learned that when he pushes me to that edge, I sometimes take a step back. I take a deep breath. I try to relax, look at the entire situation, and even sometimes remove myself from the situation. Let, let the tension kind of disperse a little bit and, and calm myself down and then come back and try to look at it through my eyes, through my son's eyes, and try to find a way to better deal with it rather than just having an argument in my kitchen with a teenager who already knows everything anyway. Yeah, and parenting for sure is a, I mean, it's a performance domain. I mean, pretty much 
Yeah. Every, every aspect of life, if you think about it and break it down is some kind of performance, whether it's work or sport or parenting or whatever you're doing. Um, you know, it's all, it's all performance. And if you can somehow, you know, positively influence your performance, even with parenting, with the use of these skills, you know, more props to you. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's working. It doesn't always work. I'm, I'm far from the perfect parent and I don't know that that, that that creature exists. But I can tell you that, that using that simple tool of just taking a deep breath and calming yourself down is an incredible way to be more effective as a parent. I would imagine it, it's an incredible way to be more effective as a boyfriend, as a husband, uh, or even in the workplace. You know, I think that we are all at times guilty of losing our temper and being quick to judge. And, you know, they say that, you know, once a word leaves your mouth, it's like a bullet. It can never be taken back. So um, I, I once read a long time ago, think twice and then say nothing. And from learning your breathing process and learning how to kind of stay in the moment, but just relax and let don't let the situation define you. You define the situation, so to speak. I think it's, it's helped me as a professor. It's helped me as an athlete. It's helped me as a father. And I'd like to believe it's helped me as a friend. It's helped me to avoid a ridiculous argument simply because you retaliate without taking a deep breath and thinking about what you're about to say. Wow. Yeah, that's really powerful for people to hear, you know, um, listen twice and don't say anything. I've heard also, also heard it said, you know, you, you've been given two ears and one mouth for a reason. So listen twice as much as you speak. Um, the Dalai Lama himself said, um, if you're talking, you're just restating something that you already know. So maybe if you listen more, you'll learn something new. Um, I love these, these types of themes, uh, and I, I wish they were a little bit more prevalent in today's society, it seems like there's a lot of people out there um, just speaking and thinking as if they're they're the experts on on everything, and uh, that's unfortunate. They leave themselves uh, closed off to new learning. Yeah, I like that. I like that. I like those quotes that you said, and I like that reference. And I couldn't agree more. You know, one of the to just use a very quick jujitsu adage. Um, I feel like I'm learning more now as a black belt competitor and black belt professor than when I was a white belt, the learning, the learning never ends and the learning curve never ends. You know, every time I step on the mat, I try to step on with an open mind. And oftentimes you'll, you'll hear black belts say this, or at least I hope that you do. I don't always just learn from other black belts. I'll, I'll learn from a white belt student. They, they might show me something that I've never seen before. Um, and I, and I leave thinking, wow, that, you know, that guy's been doing jujitsu for three months and he just taught me something that I didn't know until I met him. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in, in Japan, they would call that a beginner's mind or, uh, so, so always approaching everything as if you're a beginner, every time you step on the mat, as if it's your first day, will leave you much more open and open to learning new things. Um, and you bring up a good point, and I was hoping uh, maybe you could expand on it a little bit. So I've heard that adage a lot um, from black belts that, you know, once you get the black belt, the journey starts over again. Uh, you know, you're, you're a new white belt in the black belt pool. Uh, but there's a certain mindset um, that I think you have to develop in order to become a black belt. And then also a mindset you have to maintain as a black belt, you know, and I could call it black belt mindset. Um, but I also find that that's similar, but different from like a champion mindset. Um, someone, you know, the type of mindset required to become a world champion 
Uh, I was wondering, since you're both uh, a black belt and a world champion, if you could describe, you know, both types of mindsets and maybe share from your experience, what are some similarities between the two? And also what are some differences between the black belt mindset and the champion mindset? Wow. Um, Gosh, you know, I'll I'll try to address the black belt mindset first. Um, You know, like I said earlier, the black belt in of itself is really representative of how much time you've spent learning and trying to perfect your art. And in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, there, there is no perfection. You're always trying to get better. You're always trying to learn more and make the move better. Um, in, that, in that strive or that goal to get that black belt, I think the most important thing is to be open-minded and to show up every day or as often as you can. There's no real magic bullet. There's no secret. You know, you're, you're not going to get your black belt sitting at home on the couch watching YouTube. You're going to have to get up, go to the academy, get on the mat, and you're going to have to train. And some days you're going to train really well, and some days you're not going to train well at all. Some days you're going to feel like you already are a black belt, and some days you're going to feel like, oh, my God, I, I suck. Um, and, and maybe on those days when you suck are the most valuable trainings because you're still there. You're still trying. You're still learning. Um, as far as that black belt mindset, I think the mindset really comes from being open and going and knowing that you're going to learn and hopefully you're going to learn from somebody who is teaching you constructively in a positive way and he or she has the knowledge that you need that you want you're you're the cup you're the empty cup and you're hoping that they're going to fill your cup up and they're going to fill it up with the right knowledge and the right mindset so that one day when you get that black belt you realize that you that black belt was something that you earned but you earned it because somebody else or somebody else is took the time to fill your cup and to share that knowledge. And hopefully you will see that black belt as a, as a way of now filling other cups. Um, I, I, I look at great, great black belt professors and great instructors. And what I love about all of them, the one commonality I see in them is they're always happy to share and to teach because they love the art so much that they don't want to hold on to it for themselves. They want to give it to you. And, and I think that's probably indicative of any great teacher. He or she wants the student to be better, wants to give to the student. So as far as a black belt mindset, for me, what I've seen and what I hope I try to portray when I'm a professor, when I'm teaching, is to take all the knowledge that you have and to share it and give it in the hopes that, that you can make a difference in that person you're teaching, whether it's make a difference as them as a competitor or help them to get to that next level or that next colored belt. You know, I, I think that's what the really great black belt professors do. They step on the mat and their sole desire is to share all they can and fill your cup up. And I think when you see a black belt with that mindset, it becomes very contagious. And those are the black belts you want to learn from. You want to be around because it's very evident that they're there to give, not to take. Yeah, for sure. Um, I've certainly met some, you know, unfortunately some uh, black belt professors who still seem very, you know, very, uh, what, self-centered, self, um, you know, still very concentrated on themselves. Don't do any teaching, don't pass it on, um, you know, maybe even don't act like a black belt, uh, 
I think should on the mat. And, and I've met black belts that don't act like I think they should off the mat too out in public. Um, and I, I see that as a big problem as well. Do you see that sometimes happening in, in your circles? I, you know, I, I see it a lot, I, actually more often than I wish to see it. Um, and, you know, in circles, we can look at anywhere. I mean, look at how many great NFL football players or NBA basketball players or guys that have really reached the pinnacle in their sport that, you know, we find out later on that they, you know, they're beating their wives, they're beating their kids, they're doing things highly inappropriate. You know, our children are looking to them as idols because of their accomplishments in the arena or on the court, but off the court are, are you know, in their real everyday lives, they're, they're horrible people and they're doing horrible things. Um, unfortunately, that's in every sport. So you can't label it just NFL or just Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I have seen a lot of black belts that are incredible professors, incredible athletes that live their life like that. They, you know, they're very respectful. They're very kind. They're very humble. Um, they try to make a difference in their communities. They try to make a difference in their students. For me, Andre Galvon is the prime example of that. In everything he does, he tries to make a difference for the positive, for the better, whether he's making you a world champion or whether the church, the Reconnect Church that he now runs out of the Atos facility, helping people connect spiritually with other people. Um, you know, the things he does for his students, the things he does for his community. I see that, and he sets an example that I wish everybody could duplicate. But I also see black belts that on the mat have an air of arrogance, very cocky, very arrogant. Um, and, and that doesn't translate very well to your students. It certainly doesn't translate very well to uh, somebody from the outside looking in. And then I see those black belts going out into the real world and not behaving like a black belt, you know, doing things that they shouldn't do, saying things that they shouldn't say, treating people the way that they shouldn't. That's not every black belt, of course not, nor is it every NFL football player. You know, there's that saying that then in every basket, there's always going to be a few bad apples. And unfortunately, that exists in every walk of life and every sport. Um, for me, what I try to do and what I would hope that most people would try to do is surround yourself with black belts that aren't like that. Surround yourself with guys that set the bar high, that, that lead by example. Surround yourself with people that uh, bring out the best in you, and hopefully you can bring out the best of them. I, I continually go back to Atos and training there, but that's what I know, um, and I see that every day. So, you know, I would say to anybody, if you're looking to train under a good black belt, look at how that person conducts his or herself off the mat as well as on the mat, especially if you're a parent and you want to expose your child to martial arts, whether it's jujitsu, taekwondo, or judo. You know, how does that professor or that sensei or that master, how do they conduct themselves off the mat? How do they treat people on and off the mat? Because remember, if you're going to spend a great deal of time around them, they're going to have a profound effect upon you. And, and try to seek out those people that have a positive effect upon you that certainly don't bring a negative aspect into your life. Nice. So black belt mindset, if I could sum it up, would be not only um, technical proficiency and technical knowledge of the 
uh, jujitsu uh, system, but also um, very much tied into community efforts, tied into really connecting with other people on pos- in positive ways and um, leading by example as far as conduct, morals, values, that sort of thing all gets wrapped up into black belt mindset. I, yeah, absolutely. You know, because when we think of a black belt, all of us, we think of someone who has reached the pinnacle of his or her sport. Um, and, and whether they're a good back black belt or a bad black belt at the time, we look at them with a little bit of reverence. You know, we always do. You know, we're going to see them as, wow, that person's a black belt. You know, I want to aspire to be like that. So I think as a black belt, you owe it. You owe it to the community. You owe it to the people that are looking up to you to behave in a, in a way that's worthy to be looked up to. Yeah. So what about um, champion mindset? Because I, I feel like that's a little bit different. And that's what I have uh, more experience in as far as my master's degree and my studies, as far as studying, you know, Olympic mindsets, champion mindsets across sports. But for you, being a multiple world champion, um, what okay, if you could describe for you, what does what does it take to develop a champion mindset? What, what does that even look like? And um, how is that different from the black belt mindset? You know, I I think a champion mindset differs in the sense that it has to be a little bit selfish. Um, you know, and I don't say that in a negative connotation, but you're trying to be the very best in the world. You want to be a champion. And because of that, you have to center a lot of effort and energy upon yourself. It also requires an enormous amount of sacrifice. Sometimes you do have to take more than you give. And I don't mean take in a negative way, but I mean, you've got to be surrounded by people that are going to give you the very best so that you can absorb that. You, the best coaching, the best strength coaches, the best nutrition coaches, people that are going to give you the very best of themselves because you need that very best to take yourself to the level that you aspire to be. Um, you know, the champions are not made on a couch. Champions really are guys that they're different. They're different than the rest of the world because they focus on their goal and they're willing to give everything and sacrifice so much in attainment of that goal. And sometimes it can be very selfish. There are times when you have to maybe get up early in the morning and miss family time. There are times when you don't go out with your buddies on a Friday night uh, and have a few beers and, and cut loose because you've got to train Saturday morning or because you're cutting weight or because you know that going out and drinking beers and staying up late is not going to allow you to get up Saturday morning and train to the best of your ability. There are times when your girlfriend or your wife says, Hey, let's go out and have a bottle of wine and, and uh, let's go away for a week and have a nice vacation. And you have to say, no, I can't because I'm training for the Pan Ams right now. And I'm right in the middle of a training camp, but after that we can do it. Um, So I think that, that champion mindset requires you to really focus on yourself. It requires you to focus on what are the things that I need to do to achieve my goal, to be the very best that I can be in that moment on that day of the tournament. And unfortunately or fortunately, depending upon how you look at it, that requires a lot of selfishness. Um, And, uh, you know, sometimes we have to take, take, take and train, train, train. And that mindset, um, isn't always conducive for a lot of people. I mean, it's, I look at guys that, uh, work full-time jobs and are full-time parents and husbands and full-time in their community. It's difficult for them to train, to be a champion 
because they have to give so much of themselves before they can give back to themselves. Um, but I always admire those that can do it. And there are guys out there that do it. And I think they know when to be selfish and when to do for them and when to do for others. And, um, but if you really think about it, you know, Andre Galvan said to me once and got it, it just made total sense. He said, there's no magic bullet to be a world champion, Peter. All you have to do is show up every single day, train hard every single day, bring your best game every single day and never quit, never quit and keep moving forward. And one day you will be that world champion. But to do that requires a lot of selfishness if you really think about it. Yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, so maybe that's one major difference between the champion mindset and the black belt mindset is uh, one is involves a little bit more selfishness uh, in order to achieve a goal or a purpose, whereas the other is more um, directed towards selflessness and giving of the knowledge and giving of the support uh, to community. Yes, I agree. I agree. And, and, I, and I think that, you know, I, at the risk of sounding romantic, I'm sure there's a way to encompass both and to do both. But sometimes one has to yield to the other. Yeah, it sounds like there'd be um, definitely some differences between the two, but definitely some crossover as well. And I think um, Professor Galvao is, is a great um, model for that because he's not only, uh, you know, like you said, one of the best ever, one of the best champions in the sport has ever seen, but also is, uh, you know, very good black belt as far as, um, you know, the way he conducts himself. So he's found a balance and he's found a way to, know when to turn on the champion type mindset and when to turn on the black belt mindset um, and how to integrate them both. I think, I definitely think, uh, you know, it's not too far fetched to think that, you know, they, someone can embody both, but maybe needs to know when to engage which type. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I think that, you know, you're right. Andre Galvan is for me, the perfect example. And I'm sure there are other great, great examples out there. And I think that for all of us, we should try to seek out those examples and emulate what they do. Yeah. So speaking of um, bringing yourself up to your best potential, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about this because it's something that is relatively new to me, maybe in the last uh, nine months, but that's uh, testosterone replacement therapy or TRT. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is now I'm, I'm 35, no, 36 and um, I got my blood test done, uh, you know, at, you know, you, you suggested that I just have them checked out, have them check your blood levels. And I did and found that my testosterone was low for my age group, which was really surprising to me because I thought that I did a lot of manly type shit. Like I thought, like, I thought I, you know, I thought I was, uh, you know, I would have higher testosterone levels because of all the, you know, exercise and lifting and all this stuff that I'm doing. But found out that it was lower than normal and got put on um, hormone replacement therapy, TRT shots every couple of weeks, you know, a low dose, but something to bring my levels up to, um, you know, the normal range or just at the high end of the normal range. And I've found personally in the last nine months that it has significantly improved uh, my life in a lot of different ways. Um, Not only um, do I feel more energy day to day, I was feeling really lethargic back then, but um, my libido is up. And as far as, uh, training goes, like my, my recovery times are much shorter. Mm-hmm. Um, I've noticed, um, some strength gains, some gains in cardio. Um, 
and some other games too. And I was wondering if you could talk a, a little bit about your experience with it and how you found it to be helpful for you. Um, because we are, you know, we are getting older every day and our bodies can't always keep up with the level of intensity that our minds want to push us. And sometimes a little bit of, um, supplementation in this way, uh, done properly, you know, with the monitoring of, of medical staff can be really beneficial. Uh, absolutely. You know, I would, you know, I would preface this by saying that I myself do TRT. Um, I don't hide that from anyone. In fact, I, I share it with my friends because I am a big believer in it. Um, but like you said, there's a difference between a man, I'm in my fifties and you're in your thirties. There's a difference between a 30 year old man or a 50 year old man doing low-level or low-dose testosterone replacement therapy in an effort to increase the quality of his life, in an effort to, to kind of bring back a little bit of his youth and hopefully increase his longevity. That's a big difference between a 22-year-old athlete who is taking an incredible amount of androgenic and anabolic steroids, performance-enhancing drugs, in an effort to to go above and beyond any way that he could ever attain naturally. So a lot of times there's a misconception when people hear TRT versus, oh, steroids. Um, they're they're so, so different and so far apart. It, it's, it's almost ironic that they should be mentioned in the same sentence. I will tell you that, that medical studies show, and, and if there's any doctors out there listening, um, you know, maybe they can find a different data or different research, but from the research that I have been exposed to and I have seen is that most men, or I should say all men from the research I've seen, that after the age of 30, your testosterone levels begin to drop. And after the age of 40s, they begin to drop significantly. And we now know through medical research and data that there is a direct correlation between testosterone levels and libido, testosterone levels and a feeling of well-being testosterone levels and even cardiovascular disease, testosterone levels and obesity. So I think that every doctor would agree that, that a healthy testosterone level is as close as we have right now to the proverbial fountain of youth. That if you're a man in your late 30s and you have a very low level of testosterone, certainly not what you had maybe in your late 20s, you're going to experience very common effects such as low libido, such as depression, anxiety, um, sleeplessness. Um, you're not going to perform as well in your daily activities. Um, you're not going to perform as well in your life. There's just no question about it. And now you hear about people talking about, well, I'm on hormone replacement therapy. Women that have gone through menopause that are now taking estrogen and low-level testosterone because studies have shown that that hormone replacement therapy helps them deal with the way their body's going to respond after menopause. You now hear of men in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s taking low-dose testosterone replacement therapy and going out and doing uh, 5Ks or triathlons or are skiing all day, are, you know, for some men, simply just feeling better. So there is no question about it that hormone replacement therapy has found its way into the mainstream community. Like all things, there, you're going to hear pros and cons. And there are pros and cons. I, I always tell people that 
for me and for the people that I know who take testosterone replacement therapy or HRT, which really is hormone replacement therapy, done correctly under a doctor's supervision by a doctor who really understands hormone replacement therapy, um, it, it can be a lifesaver. It, it is incredible what it can do. And the pros will far outweigh the cons. Done incorrectly, the cons will outweigh the pros. Um, I can say for me, I've been doing hormone replacement therapy for about five years now. And just like you, I, I wasn't feeling great. I was training as hard as I could every day. I wasn't making the gains that I thought I should be making. I, I just didn't feel great. And I just thought, wow, you know, what's, what's going on? I, you know, gosh, I'm doing everything right. I'm, I'm training hard. I'm giving my body rest. I'm doing everything. I'm eating well, but I just, I'm still so sore. I still can't perform. I'm not being able to do the things I want to do. So I went and had my testosterone levels checked and while they were still relatively good for a man in his late 40s at the time, they certainly were not what any hormone replacement doctor would tell you are optimal. So my doctor said, hey, listen, you know, I, I think you would do very well on testosterone replacement therapy, but let's get something straight. I'm not going to try to turn you into a 20-year-old professional bodybuilder. That's an entirely different world, and that's not the world that you live in. What I would like to do is supplement some testosterone therapy to help you perform better, recover better, hopefully feel better and, and live a longer, more productive life. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to give you a little bit of testosterone and then we're going to monitor your blood and we're going to make sure that we're doing it at a safe level. And then we're going to see how you feel and how you respond to it. And for me, I responded very favorably to it and I'm a big believer in it. I can tell you that my testosterone levels are not that of a 22-year-old college football player. Um, and, you know, it, for me to get levels like that, I would have to do such an incredibly high dose of testosterone that I would probably start experiencing a lot more of the cons than the pros. So like you, I do a, a what they would call maybe a low to moderate dose, a dose that helps me perform better, feel better, and hopefully look better, but certainly not a dose that any bodybuilder would look at and say, yeah, that's, that's what you should be doing. Because a, a bodybuilder or someone who's looking for a performance-enhancing dose, he or she is going to look at what you or might do or what I might do and say, oh, my goodness, that's like taking a baby aspirin compared to what I take. Um, but again, remember, I'm, I'm just trying to get the, boat, the best I can out of myself at this stage in my life. I'm not looking to step on a stage at 22 years old and be a 280-pound professional bodybuilder. So my dose is not indicative of that. And, and I would venture to say that any good doctor would never give that dose to, to someone like you or me, who's just looking to get a little bit better or feel better. Yeah. And that's been ex pretty much exactly my experience with my own TRT doctors, uh, exactly what you described, you know, doing it very ethically and, uh, close monitoring. Um, and you know, <sighs> I go back and forth with this because I, you know, a lot of people are ignorant to TRT and jump right on board with saying it's a performance enhancer and things like that. And I do see their point. Um, I do feel like my performance is enhanced uh, to some level with the TRT, um, whether it's recovery performance or cognitive performance or 
uh, strength performance or whatever. Um, so what, I mean, what is your take on, um, TRT being considered a performance enhancer, even with lower doses? Uh, cause you're right. You know, we, you and I are in the camp that we're just trying to get the most out of our physical gifts while we can, while we have the ability to, uh, before we get too old and we don't see it as performance enhancing necessarily or putting us on a, a totally different level that's unfair, but a lot of people would see it that way. And including, you know, like the UFC, certain organizations see TRT and ban it because they feel it's performance enhancing. You know, I, I certainly can understand where a layman or someone who's uninformed or who has spent too much time on, on the internet or social media would see it that way. And you certainly can't fault them for that. Um, but I think the more research you do and the more you learn about it, you understand that there is a difference between hormone replacement therapy that helps enhance the quality of your life versus taking anabolic and androgenic steroids that help increase your performance on an athletic field. There's a huge difference. Um, and I believe that, um, that both should be regulated, of course. I mean, is it fair for a 25-year-old UFC fighter at the, maybe the peak of his career to take an enormous amount of performance-enhancing drugs and then go out there and be bigger and faster and stronger than everybody else in his weight class. Some athletes would tell you, no, do whatever you can to be the very best you can be uh, when you step onto the competition stage. But again, what I tell people is this. I train every day with world champions. Um, Keenan Cornelius, one of the best jiu-jitsu players in the world. Lucas Barboza. Andre Galvon, Josh Hinger, Gustavo Batista, Kenan Duarte. The list goes on and on and on. Those guys didn't become world champions because they did performance-enhancing drugs. Quite honestly, I don't know anything about what they do or they don't do. All I can tell you for sure is they show up every day. They train harder than everybody else. They give their very best, and they have driven themselves to become world champions. So to say that well, geez, if I, if I took steroids or if I took HRT, I would be a world champion or I'd be a UFC champion or I'd be an NFL All-Pro. That's ridiculous because if that were true, then all you'd have to do to be a pro football player or to be a, a world champion in any sport is just find a doctor that will give you enough performance-enhancing drugs. And, and that's not fair. That's saying that, that people are achieving success based upon what chemicals they put into their body. No. They're achieving success because they're working hard, because they're driven, because they're athletically gifted, because they're talented, because they never quit, because they eat correctly, because they train correctly. Now, if they're also adding performance-enhancing drugs, does that give them an edge? Of course. I, I, I would be foolish to think anyone would believe me if I said, no, performance-enhancing drugs don't help at all. The title alone tells you they help, performance-enhancing drugs. But again, remember that there's, there's such a vast difference between hormone replacement therapy and drugs designed to help you perform better. Uh, hormone replacement therapy is, is, for doctors listening, it's an androgenic drug. It's testosterone. It's putting back in your body uh, uh, a hormone that's already in your body, testosterone. Anabolic steroids that's a drug that's not in your body. That's putting something in your body that's going to make you grow bigger muscles, stronger muscles, recover quicker at a faster rate. 
that's completely different. That's a performance enhancing drug. So, you know, it's a misconception that guys that are doing TRT or women that are doing HRT are doing quote unquote steroids. They're doing androgenic hormones. They're not doing steroids that we would think about when we look at bodybuilders and we see guys on stage that look like cartoon characters because of their incredible musculature. So should sports regulate performance enhancing drugs? I would say right now, I guess they would have to because some people do and some people don't. In the future, will we see more athletes doing performance enhancing drugs? I think absolutely we will. Uh, in the future, will you see more, more people, not athletes, but people doing hormone replacement therapy? Absolutely. Absolutely, because we now see that it really does increase the quality of one's life. But to compare the two is a lot like comparing apples to oranges. They're not. They're not the same drug. They shouldn't be used in the same sentence. But unfortunately, the moment anybody hears it, they just automatically lump it together and, oh, steroids. And that's not always the case. Yeah, I agree. So, but what what do you think about the state of, uh, I guess, the use of performance enhancing drugs? And particularly, you mentioned, you know, regulating PEDs in sports should be done to some extent and is done in most major sports, but our sport in particular, jujitsu, I don't know of any regular regulation against any sort of drug. I know there's people that compete every weekend and are massive amounts of steroids as well because they think it's going to help their performance um, and there's no regulation right now um, but at the same time I also don't see you know so I know that there's there's this uh, PED use going on but I don't see a ton of um, you know collateral damage from the use you know I don't see a lot of people out there complaining that others are on a different level uh, what do you think as far as the state of PEDs in in the world of jiu-jitsu well, I think that it, it is addressed, believe it or not, and, and very few people know that, but it is addressed um, at the world championships. And, and I'll give you an example of how the IBJJF, the International Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Federation, is, is addressing it, at least to a certain extent. Uh, at the end of the world championships, all black belt finalists and our gold medalists who actually win a title that day as a world champion black belt they are subject to an uh, instantaneous random drug test um, through an independent uh, drug testing company, and they are tested for performance-enhancing drugs. So meaning that if you're a black belt and you win the world championships, uh, when you come off the mat, you are given a cup and you're, you have to go pee in the cup, and that, and that is then sent off to an independent testing laboratory, and you are tested for performance-enhancing drugs. To the best of my knowledge, it is only done for the black belt world champions and it is only done at the adult black belt world championships. Um, I know several black belts that have had to go through the test. Um, and I know some that have passed and I know some that have failed. Um, so the IBJJF is trying to address it, but again, it, they're, they're doing it at, at the level that they're doing. Um, as far as are there athletes out there in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu doing performance enhancing drugs? Of course, you know, I see it too. And I usually know it when I train with people or when I compete against people, you can tell, you can, you can feel like, wow, this, this guy is incredibly strong for a, a 20 year old kid, or 
man, when I saw him a year ago, he was fighting in the in the lightweight category. Now he's fighting in the heavyweight category. So, you know, I, I think sometimes it's just blatantly obvious and then other times it isn't. So um, is it going to be continued to be addressed? I think it probably will because it, it's such a hot media topic anymore. How they're going to address it, I, I really don't know. I, I would I would think that that for the athlete in of itself, it should be addressed to a certain extent just for that athlete's safety. Because if, if athletes are going to take performing enhancing drugs, maybe rather than punish them for taking it, maybe a better approach might be to help his, him or her to take them safely, um, to provide guidelines that they can take them by. And that, that might sound ludicrous. I, I just don't know. But I do know that any athlete that takes a performance enhancing drug, if he or she is taking them without a doctor's supervision, they're, they're playing Russian roulette, of course, with themselves. And But again, it gets back to, if you think that taking a performance-enhancing drug is going to make you the best in the world at your chosen sport, you're wrong. Will it help you? Will it give you a bit of an edge? Yes, of course it will. But there are so many other factors and so many other ingredients that, that come into play that it's, it's really a very controversial topic. And, and I don't know that anybody has ever addressed it well enough yet. And, you know, so I, I'm not sure even I can give you a good answer on that one. Sure. I'd say um, that training, you know, even like uh, training in what I do, training the mental aspects of sport probably have a much greater effect on your ability to become a world champion than any performance enhancing drug at any level. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, I'll give you a, a good example. Um, I know guys that do performance enhancing drugs. And I've seen them lose to guys at tournaments that I know do not do performance enhancing drugs. Um, so obviously it didn't work for them at that tournament. Um, and, and inversely, I, I've, seen, I've seen it work in other ways too. Um, I've seen guys that um, are very talented at their sport that have not performed as well that day because they might have gone up against somebody bigger, faster, and stronger. So it, it does work on both sides of the coin. Um, and, and again, it, it's a slippery slope and I think we've all heard that before. Yeah, I agree. Um, and it'll be interesting to see where, you know, where it goes and where the regulation and stuff goes. I'm interested though, for those people that you do know who have won world championships and then failed the year analysis afterwards, do they get stripped of their, uh, medals and of their titles? They do. Um, I, I, you know, that, that's a good question. I, you could probably research that on Google and I probably get a much more factual or accurate answer. I do know that those that do test positive, they get a ban. They, are the, they will be banned from competition for a set period of time. And then I also think that when they come back to competition, they have to come back and subject themselves to blood and or urinalysis test. Um, whether or not they get stripped of their title, I'm, I'm not quite sure. That's a good question. But there are there have been some athletes in in both the MMA world and in the Brazilian Jiu Jitsu world that have received suspensions from competition because they've tested positive for performance enhancing drugs. OK, that makes sense. Um, well, in the last you know 10 minutes or so of this of this podcast, I was hoping that we could talk a little bit about um, your company, Five by Five Mission Ready, and your curriculum and and the stuff you do through um, through that venture. And you know, I've had the pleasure of 
uh, consulting with you a, a couple of years ago on some of the mental aspects of the program, but um, I'd love to, to hear how you've, you know, how that started, how it came to be and um, where, where it is now, because, you know, honestly, you and I haven't talked about five by five mission ready, which I think is a great program. We haven't talked about it for a couple of years now. No, it's been a while and, and it has really continued to move forward in, in a, in an incredible direction uh, since you've been exposed to the program and, and because I've continued to develop it, but also I've had the great fortune of having very talented athletes uh, in the MMA world and the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu world and, and operators in the military world and law enforcement world uh, contribute to it. So uh, Five by Five Mission Ready is the name of a program I that specializes in military combat. law enforcement defensive tactics for law enforcement personnel for people listening that don't they don't understand well, what is defensive tactics or what is military combatives those are really just fancy names for hand-to-hand combat our close quarter combat unarmed combat are just the best way i can put it is how to fight and stay alive don't get killed in the line of duty uh and really that's what it is we have a saying um here at mission ready five by five mission ready our job is not to make you a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt or a UFC champion. My job is to give you the tools to help you stay alive in the line of duty and to bring you home alive to your family. Um, so the program in itself is uh, it consists of, of several disciplines. Um, the name five by five actually came from a military acronym that says five by five. What five by five means is, uh, back in the olden days, I believe it came from the Vietnam era, but it may have come even earlier than that. Radio guys uh, in the comms, in the comm world, when they had a completely perfect frequency or signal, they would scale it on a scale of five out of five. If you were four out of five, your frequency or your, your signal wasn't yet perfect. If you were five by five, you were whole. You were as good as you were going to get. So you would hear that term. You might hear one uh, communicator say to another communicator, hey, how's your signal? I'm five by five. So I've always loved that term. And I heard years ago, a friend of mine in the special forces, uh, we were, I was teaching him uh, at that time just modern army combatives. And he was an old school uh, Vietnam era special forces guy. And I said to him, I said, uh, I, I said, sir, because he, uh, he was an officer at the time. And I said, I said, sir, are you ready to train? He said, I'm five by five and mission ready. And I thought, wow, that's, that's a cool thing. I've never heard that before. And, and I, I said, oh, okay. And, and what he meant to say was what we hear military people say nowadays is I'm GTG. I'm good to go. He was ready. He was five by five. He was whole and he was mission ready. He was ready to get back to work. So I love the saying. And as I began to create this military combatives program and this law enforcement program, I started to look at what was out there. Um, you know, the Army was learning a modern Army combatives program. The Marine Corps was learning the Marine martial arts program. Uh, and there was some good in it. Of course, it'd be, it would be unfair to say that it, they weren't good programs. But like anything, there's always room for improvement. There's room for improvement in my program. And we're trying to make improvement every day in the program. So I started to look at what were we trying to teach our law enforcement? What were we trying to teach our military? What we were really trying to teach them to do was to be able to fight, to be able to protect themselves, to protect fellow soldiers, fellow officers in the form of a, of a police officer 
to potentially protect bystanders that are standing around. And that isn't always applicable to do by pulling out your gun and shooting all the bad guys. So we really had to teach them to do what? To learn how to fight, to fight really well and to fight well enough to protect themselves and to protect those around them. Well, let's face it, not everybody's good at fighting. And if you look at arguably the best fighters in the world, who are they? They're not the jujitsu black belts. They're not the Muay Thai black belts. They're not the, the world champion boxers. Those guys are really, really great in their chosen sport. But if you really look at it, I think MMA has shown us that to be the best in that environment, in a, in a full-on-out fight, you really have to be good at several disciplines. You've got to be good at striking. You've got to be good at taking people down and not being taken down. You've got to be good at grappling, at controlling positions, and being able to submit people. So I started to look at, at those sports, and I looked at those MMA athletes, and I began working with MMA athletes, and I realized, okay, so striking, so takedowns, and grappling. Okay, well, who's the best at that? Well, for me, I thought the best strikers were boxers and Muay Thai fighters. Well, there's number one, there's number two. And then I thought, well, who are the best at taking down people? Well, wrestlers and judo people. So there was three and four. And then I thought, well, who's the best at, at grappling on the ground? And because I'm a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, I was biased. I thought, well, you know, BJJ black belts are, are amazing at on the ground. So that was my fifth sport. So I had the striking covered with boxing and Muay Thai. I had the, the takedown covered with wrestling and judo. And I had the grappling or the submission control covered with Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So I now had five good fight styles. And I realized if you really look at any high-end competitor, he or she may know a bunch of moves or movements, but they typically use the same handful to win tournaments. Uh, Mike Tyson had an incredible overhand right, you know, and, and he knocked out almost everybody with it. Cale uh, Sanderson, arguably the greatest American wrestler, he had an ankle pick takedown that everybody knew it was coming, but nobody could stop it. So while Cale Sanderson may have known every wrestling takedown in the world, he continually was successful with the one that worked best for him. So I began to see that in every discipline, there really was only a handful of moves that guys were making work all the time. So I decided, well, five by five, I have five fight styles. I'm going to try to choose the five best moves from each one of those fight styles that I think may work the best for military and law enforcement. It may not work the best for a guy getting ready to go into a judo tournament or a jujitsu tournament, but for a, a police officer, a certain judo throw might not work really well because he or she would have to give their back and they're carrying a weapon. So that might be very dangerous to try a certain judo throw where they expose their back momentarily. So, okay, what might be a better throw? Maybe a foot sweep or maybe a single leg takedown where they're attacking from the front, and if they miss the takedown, they're not exposing their weapon or exposing themselves. So what I did was I took the five fight styles. Then I looked for what I thought were the five best moves that would work for law enforcement and military from that fight style, and I created five by five mission ready. Um, and as I began to create it, I began to see that there was room for improvement, that there maybe was more than five 
great fight styles, that there maybe was more than just five great moves. So I built it on the foundation of five by five, but then I brought in Professor Andre Galvan, who is an incredible wrestler, who's an incredible judo and jujitsu black belt. And we looked at the program and he said, oh, well, let me show you another really great move that you might want to add to the program. And then I started working with a really great Muay Thai uh, black belt. And I showed him the, the moves that we were doing. He said, oh, that's great. But let me show you a different way to clench that might be safer for a police officer and how they can learn to use a knee strike to the inner thigh instead of bringing the knee strike up to the abdomen if they're a smaller person. So I began to see how the program that I had created could be made even better by bringing in more talented people in their area of expertise. And through that, we have continued to develop this special operations combatives program this high-risk law enforcement defensive tactics program. And now we have, we've built the super version of 5x5 Mission Ready, and we're getting ready to launch it here very shortly, where people will have access to it both through a video platform, they'll have access through it by having us and our team of instructors come to them, to their law enforcement agency or to their military unit, or they'll have access to coming to us where they can learn uh, here in San Diego at our facility through us. And our goal is, is very simple. It is not to make UFC champions or black belt fighters because you know that would be impossible unless we had them every day for long periods of time. Our goal is to give them the very best tools that we can, to train them the best that we can, to help them be more proficient in their job, to stay alive in the line of duty and to give them those tools to bring them home alive. Nice. Um, so, you know, we only have an, another minute or so. Um, could you share with the audience some, uh, some ways that they could reach out to you and, and get in contact or um, a website for five by five mission ready or, or some way that they can look into some of these things? The easiest way to get a hold of me now is you can contact me through my Instagram, which is PC. I-A-C-A-V, like vector, A-Z-Z-I-B-J-J. That is my Instagram, at PC Yakavazi BJJ. You can also contact me through Atos Jiu-Jitsu, which is www.atosjujitsuhq, headquarters. Uh, very soon, we will have our, our video platform up and our website up. We're, we're just putting the finishing touches on it now. So you can contact me through either one of those venues. Any of your listeners can certainly contact me directly through you. Um, and once we have the website up and running, which will be very soon, I will certainly provide you with that. Um, and, uh, but I say right now, either through my Instagram or contacting me directly at Atos Jiu-Jitsu headquarters in San Diego, California would be the easiest way to get a hold of me. If you'd like to learn more about me or about our programs, or if you're interested in booking myself or some of our black belts for seminars, and hopefully if you would be interested as a law enforcement um, operator, as a military operator, or as a first responder in learning the five by five mission ready program as a way of making you more proficient and safer in your job. Great. Uh, well, it was, an, it was an honor talking with you today, Professor, and uh, I look forward to training with you at some point in the future, uh, probably be coming out to San Diego to 
to visit Atos and the team out there. And um, until then, uh, I'll keep in contact. And thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. And as you know, my home is always your home. You're always welcome. All right. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Wow, what an amazing podcast that was. Uh, I just wanted to take a little bit of time to remind our listeners that we are sponsored by my private practice counseling and consulting company, MindOps. You can find us at MindOps.com. That's M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S.com. We are a full-service counseling and consulting company uh, working with individuals, teams, small groups, large groups, businesses. Uh, we work on one-on-one uh, individual basis. And like I said, with groups, we can do it um, – at your location uh, or at a distance. So check us out. Check out the MindOps YouTube page as well to uh, see some videos that we've recorded about some of the topics that we talk about here on the podcast. And please continue to support the podcast. The best way you can do that is to continue to like and share on your own social media pages, Instagram, Facebook, whatever. Please let your friends and family know about the podcast and let's get these conversations and this information out to as many people as possible. If you find value in the information that you receive from the podcast in any way, please feel free to donate any amount that you feel um, could help us uh, expand our podcast. All proceeds and all donations um, go towards making the listener, uh, making your experience better. So uh, we plan on upgrading our microphones and our computer systems in the near future when we reach our goal of 40 podcasts. So please feel free to donate every little bit counts even if it's a dollar please go and donate there should be a link at the bottom of whatever podcast app you're listening uh so please do that and until next time keep these conversations in your mind keep having conversations with your own mind and keep working towards optimal growth and uh we'll talk to you next time thanks